Want to know why? Ask how. Howard, the humongous. Let's push the button. Button. Come on. Push. There we go. The conspiracy theorist behind the worldviews of the sender of 14 letter bombs, Caesar Savak, and the synagogue shooter, Robert Bowers, believe that globalism is a gigantic plot to overthrow the Constitution, take your guns away, and saddle the world with a UN-based government that polices all of us with black helicopters. As one female Trump fan put it, the evil George Soros seeks to overthrow our government and way of life by force. But is that true? Here's more of what drove the letter bomber and the synagogue shooter. It's from a paper promoted by the neo-Nazi website Stormfront. It's an article by James Miller, Ph.D., called Immigration, Globalization, Political Correctness, the Jewish Elite's Attack on the Western World. Uh, claims Miller, sometimes prior to World War II, a quiet coup was carried out in the United States. Our government was hijacked by a group of global elites, mostly Jewish. Thus, it's irrelevant who was or is the sitting president, Obama, Bush Jr., Clinton, Bush Sr., Reagan, Carter, Ford, Nixon, LBJ, etc. They all, except for JFK, exclusively served the globalist agenda. And what is the globalist agenda, asks Miller. They one day want to see something close to a borderless world, or at least a world with weak, unenforced borders like we see in the European Union today, with a global government based on the United Nations concept, or perhaps even the UN itself. The big question is, is any of this true? Apparently not. George Soros laid out his hopes in his 2002 book, George Soros on Globalization. Did he call for the destruction of nations, the erasing of borders, and the digestion of the world's separate states into a giant UN with black helicopters? Not one bit. He poo-pooed the UN. He called it a talking shop and a patronage preserve for superfluous diplomats and out-of-power politicians. He didn't call for the overthrow of old institutions. He called for the Reformation. Said Soros, quote, institutional reforms are needed to complement the World Trade Organization's World Trade Organization, which facilitates wealth creation with similarly powerful international institutions devoted to other social goals, such as poverty reduction and the provision of public goods on a global scale. Public goods, that's things like the subway I take to get from Brooklyn into Manhattan, and the highways that you use to get to work every day, and international institutions to alleviate poverty, that's the equivalent of the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But more about them in a little bit. Okay, despite the reality of what George Soros wants to achieve, according to the bully boy Wright, he is the mastermind of the globalists, the evil Jew, puppeteering world affairs, and the mad ideas of the bully boy Wright are being retweeted and repeated by Donald Trump, his son Donald Trump Jr., and Trump's attack dog, Rudolph Giuliani. But who in reality is George Soros? 
Says the New York Times, Mr. Soros was born into a Jewish family in Hungary and survived the Nazi occupation as a child in part by posing as the Christian godson of a government official. After World War II, Mr. Soros fled Hungary for England as the Soviet Union consolidated control in his home country. He worked as a waiter and a railroad porter and studied at the London School of Economics where he was deeply influenced by the theories of an Australian philosopher who taught, who taught there, Karl Popper. Mr. Popper wrote about the consequences of what he called closed and open societies, concepts that shaped Mr. Soros's investment strategy and his philanthropy for decades. Here's how the Encyclopedia Britannica explains closed and open societies. A closed society is one in which an individual's role and function can theoretically never be changed, as in the traditional Hindu caste system. Now, is that what you want to live in? Doesn't reflect American ideals. And here's the Britannica on open societies. An open society, on the other hand, allows the individual to change his role and to benefit from corresponding changes in status, which sounds to me like the American dream. And that American dream is what Soros is supporting. But back to the New York Times on George Soros. Soros made daring investments in companies and currencies that proved hugely lucrative, prompting the economists to call him surely the world's most intriguing investor in 1987. Soros' decision to short the British pound in 1992 earned his funds a reported profit of a billion dollars. The result is George Soros has an amazing ability to give to charities. Says the Times, Mr. Soros and his foundations supported groups and individuals seeking, seeking to bring down communism, including the Solidarity and Charter 77 movements in Poland and Czechoslovakia. The leaders of both groups would later lead their countries in the post-communist era. The Times goes on that Mr. Soros has given his main group, the Open Society Foundations, $32 billion for what it calls democracy building. Those are efforts in the United States and around the world. Now, $32 billion, that's one of the biggest charitable undertakings in human history. But it's not alone. It's up there with the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the contributions of Warren Buffett, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But look at that list of charitable people, J.D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Warren Buffett, and Bill and Melinda Gates. None of those are Jewish. Only one Jew, George Soros, has managed to rise to their level. Now, have any of these people erased governments and established a new world order? Not quite. What's more, when it comes to the politics of the United States, according to the New York Times, George Soros has only contributed roughly $75 million over the years to federal candidates and committees. By contrast, the right-wing conservative Koch brothers, who we love to demonize on the left, and their network of billionaire donors, they've spent roughly $2 billion in the last decade or two on influencing political outcomes, 25 times as much as George Soros. Nonetheless, there is a shit-throwing war right now about globalism versus nationalism. The president has declared himself a nationalist and has driven many of us on the left into a frenzy. 
But there should be no battle between globalism and nationalism. We need both, nationalism and globalism. Thanks to globalism, two billion people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 20 years. Thanks to globalism, cell phones from Finland, China, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea are raising the standard of living in Africa. The smartphone revolution has been incredibly global. It's a planet-spanning competition between Nokia and Finland, Apple, whose phones, most of whose phones are assembled by Foxconn in Zhengzhou, China, 50% of them, Samsung in South Korea. The laptop computer revolution also came from global collaborations. The very first laptop, the TRS-100, was sold and branded by America's Radio Shack and built by Kyocera in Japan. The next laptop computers to dominate the market in the early 1990s came from Toshiba in Japan. What has seeking to manufacture in the lowest paid and highest work ethic labor markets meant for you and me? We can afford smartphones and laptops. And spreading those devices to almost every American has been the soil and fertilizer in which the seeds of some of the world's biggest businesses have grown. American businesses, employing roughly half a million Ameri half a billion American workers. Google, Facebook, and Amazon, astonishing businesses that have changed our lives. Then there's the success of the biggest brick and mortar retailer in America, Walmart, a company that employs almost two million Americans. Wait, I was wrong. The combined total of Facebook, Google, etc. is uh, about 500,000 people. But Walmart made its money through a combination of globalism and localism, nationalism. It sourced most of its products from China, used its massive financial leverage and penetration of the American market to bargain down Chinese prices, and enabled lower-class working Americans to buy things they couldn't previously afford. Walmart lifted the quality of American lives, probably including your life and mine. And I don't know about you, but Amazon has increased my powers of choice, affordability, and quick access enormously. In five minutes, you can read a recommendation of a product from a friend or a scientific study, Google it, decide whether or not it sounds useful, price versions of it on Amazon, read reviews, and have it in three to four days, sometimes two. From my seat at the Chocolateria, the cafe where I do all of my work, I write my books, I can find a succulent-sounding new book and have it downloaded to my two Kindles in literally minutes which means that you and I are purchasing from an American company that employs roughly 400,000 of our fellow Americans. An American company whose founders' space efforts could make sure we are still the leading country in the next decade or two. Meanwhile, a global economy does more than lift the quality of your life and mine and give you new powers. It has lifted the Chinese from starvation to the second largest economy on Earth which means that the ordinary subsistence farming Chinese person has been lifted out of poverty and turned into an affluent middle-class worker in a big city. Now, all measures indicate that people are happier, healthier, more prosperous, more productive, and more creative in cities. What's more, according to a 2010 Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco report, approximately 35.6% of all clothing and shoes sold in the United States 
were actually manufactured in China compared to just 3.4% made domestically in the USA. Now, what has that done for you and me? When I was a kid in the 1950s, once you had a pair of shoes, you stuck with them until they wore out. Shoes cost too much to have a sack of different shoes in your closet. Today, you and I can buy Skechers, Nike, Adidas, or Florsheims for a modest price, try out different models until we find a few that fit our feet, our walking style, and our moods. And in poverty-afflicted neighborhoods, teenagers can sometimes show off new, astonishingly designed shoes nearly every day. In other words, globalism has given us what we mistakenly called mindless consumerism. Is there a value to mindless consumerism? You bet. Ten years ago, I wrote my books and did my organizational work from a cafe in my neighborhood, Park Slope, Brooklyn. The cafe was called the Tea Lounge. It was a huge, cavernous space with very few windows. At night, it had loud jazz bands. To accommodate the bands, the house lights were turned down, which meant I was laptoping in utter darkness. I couldn't see my keyboard. So from my seat in the darkness of the tea lounge, I went online to Amazon, checked out lights that you could plug into your USB port, and bought roughly five different USB-powered and battery-powered lamps, all of them really radically different. Many of those that had seemed like good ideas at the time simply didn't work for me, but one did. Without trying out five, I would never have found the one that did the trick. Why could I buy enough lamps to find the one that worked for me? Because they were less than $15 each. Some were $8. And why was that? They were made in China or Vietnam. And they were sold by an internet retailer, Amazon. I could order these things from my seat at the Chi Lounge. The bottom line? George Soros is not a monster. What he wants, an open society, is a democratic society. He has not paid the caravans that Donald Trump uses to whip up hysteria and to drive Republicans frantically to the voting booth. Soros also did not pay the anti-Kavanaugh protesters. If I'd had spare time, and if I had lived in Washington, I would gladly have joined those protests. No pay needed. And is globalism a destroyer of the American way of life? Absolutely not. Without a global economy, you and I would be stripped of many of the tools we take for granted, including identity tools like a choice of the 15 or more shirts in our closet. Shirts made for us in Bangladesh. This is Howard the Humongous speaking to you from the future. It's your job and my job to make. Or, want to know why? Ask how. And now for that sleazy, slimy, seditious, undercutting, confidence-destroying little off-bar.